Why are people poor? Wow, that's a good question. Hmm. No one has ever asked me that question ever, ever in my life. But I think that people being poor is not something that they choose. It's real simple. People are poor because they don't have cash. Individuals don't have cash because we have set up systems within this country to keep individuals from getting the money that they need to live their best lives. And when I say people, let me even break that down a step further. We have set up systems to intentionally ensure that brown and black people are victimized in this country by our structures. You just heard from Tiana Gaines-Turner, wife, mom, and full-time worker living in Philadelphia, and from Aisha Yanduro, who's the innovative founder of the Magnolia Mothers Trust, a guaranteed income pilot for low-income Black mothers in Mississippi. These were our guests on last week's episode of System Check. The insights they offered during that episode were so powerful, we decided to continue the conversation about poverty this week. That's right, Melissa. And so we continued to ask the question, why are people poor? Because the system's rigged in a way that doesn't allow the children of this nation and their parents an equal shot at the economic opportunity that the richest nation on earth gives to one part of our nation and not everybody. People are poor because we have a system, a structure that makes people poor and keeps people poor. And those answers came from Reverend Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and Mary Kay Henry, international president of the SEIU. They joined System Check this week as we conduct a check of the systems we need to create to end poverty. I'm Dorian Warren. And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And this is System Check. Dorian, we started talking about poverty in our last episode, but we found there was still so much to say that we needed to come back to the issue again this week. So true, Melissa. And we felt it critical to keep discussing poverty, given what we're seeing across the country in the midst of our holiday season. Now, when we first talked about people waiting in line for hours, we were talking about Americans exercising their right to vote. Now, the jaw-dropping lines across the country is of families waiting to get food from local food banks. Listen, it is stunning and not in a good way. The lines in Texas, in Detroit, New Jersey, New Orleans, just really everywhere, even where I live in a kind of mid-sized town in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, hundreds of families are lining up before 6 a.m. every single morning, just trying to feed their families. And I was thinking about these families this holiday week. I mean, I was looking at cars snaking down the roadway in the pre-dawn hours. And I kept thinking about the fact that when we asked our guests the question, why are people poor? Every single one of them said, it's a system. So if poverty is created and sustained by systems, then alternative systems can offer solutions. And Dorian, our listeners may not know that you have this very long history of working with communities and movements to create new systems, but I'm kind of hoping that in this episode, you will talk about some of that. 
So let's just start with me asking you a question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because what I remember is that you were on the ground during the Occupy Wall Street movement back in 2011. So what do you remember as the most important outcomes of that movement? Mm, well, it's been nearly a decade since protesters set up that first Occupy camp in the New York financial district, and it was September 2011. And this was a movement launched by innovative means, right, to draw public attention to the vast economic inequalities plaguing our system. And they just went out to a public space and refused to leave. They occupied this park in downtown New York in the financial district. And soon, the New York occupiers were joined by others laying claim to squares and parks across the country. So for more than two months, the Occupy movement literally occupied public space and, of course, as we might remember, massive media attention. But the physical presence of the protesters in public parks was abruptly and forcibly ended in November of that year by a pre-dawn police raid in New York and in other cities around the country like Oakland. And there were continuing mass actions and flash mobs. But by the start of 2012, well, mm, the Occupy movement was kind of over. But, but Melissa, that does not mean that the movement failed. Okay, that is maybe the most important lesson. <laughs> I mean, just that, right? That it's so important to remember that even when movements are very short-lived, they can still be a big part of system change, even if it seems at first like they maybe failed. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what I would argue happened with Occupy, because the movement succeeded in introducing critical new ideas. And in fact, that's what we know movements do best. They force issues and new ideas onto the political agenda, especially when either political party doesn't want to deal with them. So Occupy drew attention to the shocking growth of economic inequality, and it gave that inequality a clear brand, the 1% versus the 99%. And it was such a smart way to talk about the issue because 99%, if you think about it, was so inclusive and all-encompassing. 99% meant that nearly all of us were not benefiting from the rigged economic and political system that protected just a few super rich. And Melissa, there's a big fancy political science word for that. It's called oligarchy. <laughs> and it means literally <laughs> rule by the wealthy few. And so obviously on face value, that would be the exact opposite of the meaning of democracy, hmm. rule by the people, as in all the people have a voice in the rules and policies that affect our lives. And in this sense, we might say Occupy was a movement moment for democracy against oligarchy. And one of the most important campaigns that emerged from Occupy was the Fight for 15 movement, a clear demand to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour and to fight for a union for low-wage workers. So part of what I love about the way you're framing this, Dorian, is that the political and the economic were connected, right? This idea that there was this rigged political system is such a crucial point because it is worth remembering that Occupy Wall Street didn't cap off while Mr. Art of the Deal Trump was president, <laughs> <laughs> right? That, that critical framing of the 99% and 1% happened during President Obama's first term. Now, obviously, you were much closer to the ground at that time. Do you remember, were Democrats and liberal lawmakers and progressive thinkers excited about that Fight for 15 movement? <laughs> you can make me cuss, Melissa. Hell no. <laughs> they were nowhere to be found. And in fact, let me just keep it real. The Obama administration had to be pushed. They had to be pulled. They had to be cajoled into just supporting a $9 an hour increase. 
And listen, don't make me start naming those so-called progressive economics professors who I was tasked with helping to organize. It was honestly jaw-dropping to talk with them, you know, in their fancy Ivy League faculty offices, enjoying the security of tenure, but saying to me and many others, oh, $15 an hour is just too much. Slow your roll, poor people. We have to wait and take this little by little. And I felt like, Melissa, I felt like I needed to walk around with a copy of Dr. King's book, Why We Can't Wait, just so I could hand it to these guys, because they were all guys, when they started (laughs) spouting incrementalism to me. Okay, but to be fair, as academics, we're not necessarily very good at the real world. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't academics who do that kind of work, but I do think there's a way that movements end up pushing those of us who exist in worlds of as much privilege as tenured academics. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I left, honestly. That's why I was like, yo, peace out. I'm out of here. I'm going to go work for the people. I'm going to go work with the people. And the thing you know, we know about poor folks is they don't read obscure academic journals. So they didn't know that the quote unquote smart people had decided for them that $15 an hour was too much too fast because they were fighting for their lives. They were fighting for their survival. And you know what? Those ordinary folk just kept fighting. And in 2012, millions of fast food workers walked off their jobs and they kept fighting. And then eventually they started winning. And by 2018, 22 million low-wage workers had given themselves a raise. They refused to accept poverty in exchange for full-time work. And these courageous, organized workers, most of them, of course, Black and Latino, pushed through $68 billion in higher wages. Think about that, $68 billion. And they built political power by passing local and state mandates for $15 an hour minimum wage. But they also changed corporate practice and policy by pressuring marquee corporations like Target, Gap, Costco, Amazon, Starbucks, Wells, Fargo, and yes, even Walmart and McDonald's to share their massive profits more equitably. And they altered the political discourse about what is possible and about who deserves fair pay for hard work. So let's review. Why are people poor? People are poor because we have a system, a structure. Because we have set up systems within this country. Because the system's rigged. And what changes those systems? Well, in our system of racialized and gendered capitalism, it comes down to a word we both know all too well, Melissa, power. And it takes multiple kinds of power, political power, economic power, cultural power, And those kinds of power change systems and the way ordinary people join together to get that power. We call that organizing. Keep listening to System Check. Up next, we talk with the Reverend Liz Theo Harris of the Poor People's Movement and Mary Kay Henry of SEIU. And later in the show, we're going to go to North Carolina for a final word from some of the people meeting the most critical needs of the poor. What if I told you there's a podcast that delivers all the real and none of the fake, can make you laugh and give you hope all at the same time? My dear friend, Alicia Garza, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, has a podcast called Lady Don't Take No. 
And Lady Don't Take No has been my weekly dose of the most authentic conversations and hilarity all through this pandemic. Alicia talks to creators, thought leaders, and activists that I admire so much, and she makes them all feel relatable. I feel like I gain a new friend every week. She's talked to Erica Huggins, Laverne Cox, Angelica Ross, and the list goes on. But I have to tell you, do not sleep on Alicia's weekly roundup of all the things she just can't take anymore and all the things she loves. This list is giving me life. This podcast is my weekly medicine, delivering what I need to hear and leaving me energized. And in 2020, that is no small feat. I'd say the only thing I'm not sure of with Lady Don't Take No is why I haven't been a guest yet. Alicia, are you listening? Now that you know, you know what to do. Listen and subscribe to Lady Don't Take No with Alicia Garza on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes every Friday morning where you used to have a commute. beginning of this episode, we heard from Aisha Yandoro. She was the one on last week's show railing against policymakers for never listening to the people they say they're trying to help. That's why her Magnolia Mother's Trust is so important. It trusts the women it supports to be able to make the best choices for improving their own lives. If you want to hear more from Yandoro about the trust and other things about guaranteed income, check out the Nation podcast, More Than Enough. On More Than Enough, host Mia Birdsong talks to the people too often left out of conversations about guaranteed income and other poverty alleviation programs in this country. People who experience poverty themselves. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And learn more at thenation.com slash more than enough. That's thenation.com slash more than enough, all one word. And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. You're listening to President Lyndon B. Johnson's January 8th, 1964 State of the Union Address. Johnson went on in this address to propose unprecedented federal initiatives to eradicate poverty. And he didn't suggest tax offsets in order to explain how we're going to pay for it. Instead, he insisted, But we shall not rest until that war is won. The richest nation on earth can afford to win it. We cannot afford to lose it. Now, Dorian, I can barely even fathom an American president saying something like this today. No, not at all. That's because the federal government's no longer a determined general leading a war against poverty. I'm struck by how the assumptions of the Johnson administration in 1964 were so ambitious. If you think back to Sergeant Shriver, then a close advisor to President Johnson and his point person leading the war on poverty, Shriver argued that the United States could end absolute poverty by the country's bicentennial of 1976. 
just 12 years. And that's coincidentally the year that I was born. And nope, we did not end poverty by 1976. And what's changed so dramatically from 56 years ago is that today, most of the battles to end poverty are fought by those outside government. So we live in a country that is the richest country by some standards in all of human history. And yet 140 million people people of all races, living in all kinds of places, are either in poverty or one storm, one fire, one healthcare crisis, one job loss from poverty. And that's using U.S. Census information. Now, that was Reverend Liz Theo Harris. She's director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And along with the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, she co-chairs the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. When Reverend Theo Harris joined System Check, she and I discussed the staggering rates of childhood poverty in our nation. You know, it costs our society more than $700 million a year to have the level of child poverty that we do. And yet, it would be more cost beneficial to end child poverty. But it's politically expedient to blame poor families for the predicament that they and their children are in. And, and so it means, you know, just just absolute chaos when it doesn't have to be that way. And and poverty is disproportionately amongst young people. It's disproportionately amongst people of color. And again, it impacts everybody from every kind of geography, every race, every ethnicity, every religion, and every age. And the places where we have less poverty is because we actually have strong organizing and strong social policy to to prevent it. Strong organizing and strong social policy to prevent it. Now, we've seen this somewhere. Oh, yeah. The AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. My mom is a member and she's a member to protect along with 38 million others the most successful anti-poverty program in America, Social Security. But scratch the surface of strong organizing and social policy elsewhere, and you'll find organized labor, and specifically the SEIU. Founded in Chicago nearly 100 years ago in 1921, the Service Employees International Union represents more than 2 million workers in frontline healthcare, essential custodial work, and public service, including childcare and long-term care. In short, the SEIU is how our country's working poor organize for what they need. It's how my grandparents, three out of four of whom were janitors in the Windy City and proud members of SEIU Local One, fought and won a pathway into the working class and later the middle class. SEIU's international president, Mary Kay Henry, has her own plan for breaking poverty's back. Auto jobs were poverty wage jobs of the last century until workers of all races sat down in Flint and said enough is enough. And the Democratic governor of the state did not call out the National Guard to suppress the strike. So government and workers worked together to create the conditions for the auto companies to say, let's reach a collective bargaining agreement and raise wages. And so those jobs became the foundation of the last middle class And I really believe that every poverty job in this century 
done overwhelmingly by black and brown and Asian people. More than 50% of these jobs are occupied by people of color. Again, no accident. That's the system uh, working the way it's designed. And if those jobs could get invested in by government, and if government could help those workers make a case to corporations who have all the powers right now, we could transform the economy and make the U.S. the most racially diverse middle class that the world has ever seen. The foundation of the last middle class and how to build the foundation for the next middle class. Well, essentially, the power building strategy of unions like SEIU and worker centers around the country amounts to this upgrade the worker or upgrade the job. Now, of course, these two strategies aren't mutually exclusive. Changing the system of poverty for unions like SEIU means upgrading low-wage jobs into good jobs like they did back in the 20th century. And upgrading jobs through worker collective action, and yes, protests, and yes, government being on the right side of history, and yes, creating systems of career ladder so workers have mobility. But today, more than 12 million poor Americans work full-time, and they are disproportionately workers of color. And in this time of a global pandemic, they're the most likely to be deemed essential workers. These workers might live below the poverty line, but they still have an awesome capacity to articulate their interest, to organize on their own behalf, and to build power to make change. I can think about our home care providers and uh, the power they have when they come together to take a sub-minimum wage job that's never had any benefits was excluded from the social security system in the 30s, was excluded from the right to organize, was excluded from overtime laws and Fair Labor Standards Act and everything under the sun because those jobs were done by primarily black women and Southern legislators didn't want them to have the power to change their lives. That was the motivation that has been hardwired into that job since the beginning of the country. And so... Power has everything to do with whether underpaid workers have the shot at making those jobs good jobs that they can raise their families on. And indeed, Reverend Theo Harris knows from her own work that people living in poverty, they're really pretty clear about their own experiences and needs. It's the policymakers who lack imagination and vision. So when we organize amongst homeless folk, amongst folks that have had to bury children because of the lack of health care, have had to, you know, work three, four jobs just to barely make it and still are living in their cars and vans, right? When we organize amongst folk that materially do not have what we all need to, to have a good life, folks don't shy away from being, uh, being called poor. Folks don't say, no, I'm, I'm just struggling to get into the middle class, like our politicians like to talk about them. But folks, folks are, are clear that they don't have what, what they need. They just don't also believe until they're engaged in, in organizing and movement building and in political activity, not just electoral political activity, but, you know, protesting, organizing, that, that it could be any different and that they have a power that they can assert, you know, to, to change things. And so, you know, many people have said to us, why do you call it the poor people's campaign? Because people, you know, don't like being called poor. And, and our experience is that that has not been how 
the poor folk that have been a part of this campaign from the start who have calling for for years, for decades. Think about these things. It's that they believe, we believe that our society should be ashamed of the poverty that exists, that people can work two, three, four jobs and still not be able to, you know, uh, eke out a, a, a good enough living for, for their families. And so, so what we have found is that people will say, yeah, I'm poor, but you all have made poor a four letter word. And of course, central to this poor people's movement. And as Reverend Theo Harris says, alleviating poverty through building power is both a policy imperative and a moral imperative. You know, I'm, I'm a biblical scholar. So I, I like social policy, economic policy, but I also, you know, study the Bible. And, and Deuteronomy says that if you forgive debts, if you release slaves, if you pay your workers a living wage, and if you lend out money knowing you'll never get paid back, then your whole society will actually flourish. And you'll lend to many and never have to borrow. And you'll, you know, it, 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 it follows an economic logic that sounds like anathema to a U.S. neoliberal capitalist system, but it, but it, it's also one that that is true. That when you organize around the needs of of the most vulnerable, that everybody can actually benefit from that. You know, passing fifteen dollars an hour as a minimum wage across this country would bring close to $400 billion into the economy that then could support small businesses that then could, you know, people would be able to afford things, you know, I mean, that 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 doesn't just improve the life of those individual 64 million workers who are been ma making less than that, but it but it improves all of society. And so, so we have those arguments. But again, it, it's more than just making the right argument. It's, it's, it's building power. And, and it's saying, we can do nothing less than this. Reverend Theo Harris is making the broad argument for $15 an hour minimum wage by pointing to its poverty alleviating effects for millions of American workers. So we asked the SEIU's Mary Kay Henry about the history of that Fight for 15 campaign. So back in the origin story, it was we were knocking on doors in communities in New York thinking that we were going to have a fight for good jobs. And what we kept hearing from predominantly fast food workers is this anger at these companies are making record profits. They're doing just fine. And I'm stuck at 725 because that was the federal minimum uh, that New York was paying at the time. And so the workers, I think a key lesson of the fight for 15 is the worker sat in the circle and did the math and wondered what wage would make it possible for them to eat, to be housed, to be able to get to and from work because of the cost of the subway, and to provide for their kids in terms of clothing and school and stuff. And that's how they, they named 15. So I have to say, Dorian, I kind of started out feeling wistful about a bygone political moment when a president boldly declared a war on poverty. But talking with Reverend Theo Harris and Mary Kay Henry has me looking forward instead of back. And so I think there's two different ways to think about the future. Like, how do we use the deepening crisis of too many people dying from this virus because of a corrupt an irresponsible federal government. 
and use that as an opportunity for the boldest change possible on tackling the pandemic and creating racial and gender equity at work once and for all. I'm incredibly hopeful that, that, that we're on the cusp of that. Up next, a final word from my town, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. First, we asked, why are people poor? And the response, it's a system. Then we asked, how can we eradicate poverty? The response, change the system. And both responses seem right, but also really hard. System change requires building power, changing policy, enduring losses, regrouping, fighting again, making headway, having a setback, breaking through, holding the line. System change requires getting in plenty of good trouble, as the late Congressman John Lewis encouraged. But in the meantime, real people have real needs right now. We are committed to both what we call feeding the line and shortening the line. This is Eric Aft. He's CEO of the Second Harvest Food Bank of Northwest North Carolina. And Second Harvest understands the scope of immediate need individuals and families face. In a normal year, Second Harvest Food Bank in Northwest North Carolina, through its 290 partner organizations that we work with across 18 counties, and importantly, that's over 2 million North Carolinians live in this region. And, you know, through our partners and direct distributions that we do, it's well over 200,000 individuals that we are reaching every single year. And due to the pandemic, the numbers uh, have increased. But putting it in context is, you know, pre-COVID, about one in five to one in six of our children face food insecurity or hunger. And now that number is one in four, uh, actually a little bit more than one in four. And if we just look at individuals overall, again, that has increased. And now it's about one in six individuals uh, face this crisis. Yes. We know that lasting change only happens when people living in poverty build power and transform these old systems into new structures to support their own flourishing. And we know that it's hard to build power when you can't eat and your children can't eat, which is why Eric Aft's statement is so powerful. We are committed to both what we call feeding the line and shortening the line. Feeding the line and shortening the line. It's not just about food. It's also about other critical needs families in poverty face, which is why we also talked with Michelle Old. She's executive director of the North Carolina Diaper Bank. Yes, diapers. Because, see, we have no system, no safety net, none to assist families living in poverty to supply diapers or menstrual supplies or adult incontinence products. And Michelle Old described the scope of that need. So one in three families experience diaper need. There is no assistance for diapers. WIC and food stamps do not cover them, and they cost up to $100 a month. So families are making really tough decisions between buying food or buying diapers, and every single time they will choose to feed their children 
and try to make those diapers last as long as they can. So we're seeing babies left in one diaper a day, families rinsing out and reusing diapers, and parents making really tough decisions about basic need items that they shouldn't have to make. Without a doubt, if a family is struggling to, to buy food, they are struggling to buy diapers. And they're going to make the decision to feed their children, and they're going to do without, and they're also going to do without period products that are going to make them feel clean and healthy and cared for. We're at a time where families are without jobs, and the struggle's even greater. And you know, we distribute to military families where one spouse is deployed and the other one is at home, basically a single parent, isolated from their family members because they're taken to places that they don't have a, a social network and they're qualified for WIC and food stamps and cannot afford diapers. We did a research study that found that 63% of military families, E6 or below, could not afford diapers every month. So we did take um, a truckload, we call it Truckload of Hope, to Fort Bragg. It's the largest military base in the world. And we serve 800 military families every single month. We also hear from teachers that are teaching our children during the day and go home at night and cannot afford diapers for their own children. So this is really a social justice issue. This is at fam about families that care deeply for their children, that work very, very hard, but still cannot provide the most basic needs to allow their, their babies and themselves to thrive. And remember, a diaper is not just a diaper. For example, most childcare centers require that parents provide a week's worth of disposable diapers. No diaper, no childcare, no work. And a menstrual pad is not just a pad. One in four teens in the United States have missed school because they do not have access to menstrual hygiene products. No tampon, no school, no future. We have not stopped, but we cannot continue to meet the need. It is absolutely impossible. We have seen a 400% increase in diapers during COVID, a 220% increase in adult incontinence supplies, and an 800% increase in requests for period products. It's not sustainable in any way. And yet we are not having these hard conversations as a community about what families need, right? We're talking about food insecurity a lot. We're not talking about these basic hygiene needs that the families need. We are committed to both what we call feeding the line and shortening the line. Feed the line and shorten the line. Undoing the system of poverty demands that we do both. Today, we begin a holiday season typically marked by consumption, by spending, by giving and receiving gifts. But 2020 has not been a typical year. So let's think of this holiday as a season of making change. So think of ways you can both feed the line and shorten the line. Think of all the ways that you can seek to actively contribute to meeting the immediate needs, but also to making lasting systemic change. If you need a place to start, start with the basics. Basics like hygiene and food, which is why Michelle Old of the North Carolina Diaper Bank and Eric Aft of the Second Harvest Food Bank of Northwest North Carolina each have a final word this week. 
in the end, I think legislators need to value dignity and basic hygiene needs for their communities and understand that families in their community cannot thrive if their basic hygiene needs are not met. I encourage everyone to find the nearest diaper bank or program that's distributing hygiene needs and support it, whether it's by a drive through an Amazon wish list that they might have or funds which will help them buy the size they need at deep, deep discounts. So really reaching out, finding those diaper banks and those programs that are distributing those dignity products is really important. You know, we're very active on the advocacy front. And right now we, we have to really talk to our congressional leaders, those that we elected to represent us. And we have to remind them that country and the residents of this country have to be put above party. And right now there, there's blame on both sides of the aisle. And I've wanted, and this is a bumper sticker that I've wanted to print is, you know, something that just says country with a line with party underneath and just remind everybody that you're elected to serve the people and not your, your, your political party. And you're not acting like it because you don't see what we see every single day of the person who is not getting food because unemployment has run out and this pandemic is taking a massive toll on our families. Advocate, please, for an increase in SNAP benefits, what many people remember as food stamps. You know, 15% is not much given what that program does, but it's also elastic. So please, you know, listeners should know that, you know, when the need's not there, people will go off of it it, it works really, really well. And it provides more food than the food bank networks do in our communities. So people need to know how important that is. So advocate, you know, talk to your elected leaders and remind them that they work for, for you um, and, and, you know, let them know. And then in concrete ways is, you know, choose what you're passionate about and support it. I hope it's, you know, things like Second Harvest Food Bank, but frankly, there's amazing work going on by so many. So get behind it, giving. If you're comfortable volunteering, uh, we are desperate for volunteers. We use 6,200 unduplicated volunteers in a year. And the pandemic has absolutely killed us. We're thankful the National Guard has helped us and been mobilized and deployed literally to the food bank. So that's been invaluable, but the challenge that we're going to face soon when they leave and ongoing. So if you're willing and you're comfortable volunteering, we'll make it a safe environment. So come out and help us. We are committed to both what we call feeding the line and shortening the line. That's a wrap for this episode. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. I'm Dorian Warren. And you've been listening to System Check. System Check is a project of The Nation, hosted by me, Melissa Harris-Perry, and Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Dee Dee Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Erin O'Mara is president of The Nation. 
And our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. Support for System Check comes from Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com. Now, the best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe online to the nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. Join the fight for the once unthinkable progressive ideas that are now mainstream. 80% off for our podcast listeners at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. And as always, if you like what you hear, Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 